0: Hello and welcome to the Open Labour podcast. I'm joined as always by my co-host Tom Hinchcliffe. Hi Tom, how you doing? Hello James, I'm alright. It's um, It's been a while since we've done I'm going to say, it's been a long time hasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, I it's mean... Been...
1: <laughs> it's been even longer since we... Um actually recorded the interview that we're going to get onto so
0: <laughs> oh no well look uh, for the, for the listeners out there full disclosure um you may have already picked up from a previous um podcast but I'm up for election in may so I'm a little bit distracted at the moment uh, apologies for that but we should be back on track um pretty soon what do you think tom you might have to do some by yourself actually in the run up to the elections
1: yeah leave me on my own to host a podcast incoherently like i did last time i mean it, it's fine there's so much on at the minute and i'm sure no one's really missing this but uh, we will be doing a few more um, in the run-up to com- web, um, open labour conference
0: and ah so we best plug that now to begin with haven't we the open labour conference which is on what date it's the 21st of march it's the it's the
1: first ever online conference and it's titled the politics of hope um, the, mm. the, the keynote speaker is incredible, it's um, Professor Joseph Stiglitz, which, yeah, you know, an American economist that uh, uh, loads of Labour members will already know who he is. Um, yes, and I think famous. Open Labour have had opportunity to members and um, people that have got tickets have had opportunity to submit questions already, but you can still get tickets. And there's, there's some incredible names on here actually that are speaking, it's um, people like. Professor Stiglitz, but then you've got, you know, people that have been on this podcast, uh, Councillor Alice Perry, who's Vice Chair of Labour's NEC, Um, Anne Black, who everyone knows, Paul Sweeney, who uh, was the former MP for Glasgow North East, Paul Blomfield, who's an MP in Sheffield, Um, James Medway, who used to advise uh, John McDonnell when he was Shadow Chancellor, you know, obviously Alex Sobel, Clive Lewis, Nadia Whittam,
0: so a lot of good people then. Yeah, yeah a lot mean, of good
1: people. It, there's, there's so many people on this, and it's not just politicians either. You know, we've got people from Hope Not Hate and all sorts of stuff uh, going on that
0: day um so it's yeah, a it's... sunday though it's not a saturday yeah. is it it's oh. Sunday? It's sunday the 21st well
1: sunday the 21st of march then sorry
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey well listen i'll tell you what i'm going to plug my uh session that i'm uh, that i've organized i've organized a great panel to talk about public sector reform so i've got uh simon Kay, who is um a phd who Works for a think tank. Sue Goss who's worked, been in and around the party for a long, long time. Um, I didn't realise actually until I spoke with Sue yesterday to talk about the panel that she used to um, work in uh, the head office of the Labour Party under Neil Kinnock, and you know, very much of the soft left tradition, and and is a great, th- com- mainly now um, spends her time thinking about public sector reform, and and, and she very much knows her unions as well. She's she was fantastic. It was a great conversation I had with her yesterday. Um, both of those um, academics like to talk about um, community led services so and, and you know I think both both people feel that we really need to think differently and, and more innovatively about public services so it, it should be exciting we 're also joined on that panel as well by Adam Ogilvy, who was a councillor for Leeds City Council and the exec member for adults and health um, so he's going to bring a little bit of practicality into how to deliver public sector services the, the politics of how to do that at a local level um, he now runs uh, he's a chief exec of a uh, of a local charity Meanwood Valley Farm that some listeners might know uh, so all three very qualified all uh, it's going to be super interesting so I, I think that's at five o'clock on the Sunday uh, as a breakout room so uh, be there or be square. <laughs> and it is and it is the Sunday, um, not the Saturday. It is the Sunday, 21st of March.
1: Thanks for clarifying that, Tom, yeah. To God. <laughs> so you can buy tickets on the Open Labour website and Eventbrite and just visit any of the Open Labour social media channels for a link. I mean, um, some people that listen to this might not be Open Labour members. You can still go, um, you can still buy a ticket um, and see all these brilliant speakers and events. So get brilliant. on it.
0: So let's um, move to the podcast then. We recorded this ages ago and we've only just got round to putting it all together. Uh, My apologies for that, listeners and Tom. um, You already know the reasons for that. Uh, We talk about Joe Biden. Um, this week, things may have all changed from our discussion, but um, at, at the time, we, we speak with Alex Sobel about it. I, I, honestly, I think this is a really interesting conversation. Alex is a font of knowledge when it comes to um, anything um, to do with American politics. He's always followed it. In fact, when I first met Alex Sobel, um, he turned up in a Toyota Prius with a, uh, and on the back of it was two Obama um, <laughs> bumper stickers, and it turns out he'd been out and been into America and been involved in that campaign so you know he's obviously an avid follower of american politics and knows his stuff so it was interesting to talk to him
1: yeah i mean the the conversation that we've had with him um about a month ago is has been you know the stuff that we talked about has been more confirmed um this week the the, the passing of the 1.9 trillion dollar covid 19 relief yeah. package um last night um obviously it's faced some criticism from the left of the of the democrats because They dropped the commitment to raising the minimum wage from $7.25 to, I think, $15 an hour. And it it didn't make it past the Senate. Um, So that was one of the, you know, the key stumbling blocks for the left. I think every Democrat voted for it apart from one. Um, But the the final bill includes one-off direct payments worth, you know, $1,400 to be sent off to most Americans. It extends weekly jobless benefit payments of uh, $300 until September. It allocates $350 billion to state and local governments and, you know, billion, hundreds of billions of pounds for school reopening, $50 billion, uh, sorry, pounds, dollars for uh, COVID-19 testing and research and vaccine distribution. There's also a, a really welcome co- uh, commitment in it from President Biden to give any surplus vaccines to countries that need them uh, once Americans are immunised. And it, overall, it's just a huge boost for the US economy and it's the right thing to do. Um, it'll prevent a lot of people falling into poverty. I think Lewis Goodall from um, BBC Newsnight tweeted this week explaining that it'll lift nearly 6 million children out of poverty in the US, which just shows, for me, what what the left can do if it wins elections just gonna win
0: but i suppose we'll see how prophetic alex Sobral is in this interview because we've said all of that and then uh, we're talking the interview goes straight to a month ago before all this was announced so uh, it's you know it's listen, with, listen carefully
1: yeah it's not without criticism this bill um and rightly so to be honest i mean dropping the commitment to to more than yeah. doubling the minimum wage is a kid
0: well kid i didn't kid. realize the minimum wage in america was so low seven dollars what I mean, that's nothing. Cents. Yeah, it's, it's really, wow, poor. Know, it's so really low, poor, isn't
1: it? Well, and, and it just shows why so many people are in poverty. We yeah. saw what happened in this country when the minimum wage was introduced. Nothing mm-hmm. happened to businesses like the doomsayers were, and the Tories at the yeah. time were saying. When yeah. the Tories voted against the minimum wage, the main thing was businesses will go down because they won't be able to afford this hike in wages. And that just didn't materialise at mm-hmm. all. And, and <laughs> simultaneously, millions of people in this country were lifted out of poverty. Imagine that on a, you know, much wider scale in the US, where private healthcare and things like that. We've always had the NHS. Private healthcare drains people's bills, and they're on, you know, barely any money, um, an hour. So this is this is hugely welcome, but as I say, it's not without its criticism.
0: Mm, so let's jump to it then. I suppose. Thanks, Tom. And we're joined now by Alex Sobel MP. Hi, Alex. Great to have you back on the show. Yes, great. Great to see you guys
2: still doing it. I think we've, we're in, well into double figures now on this podcast, aren't we?
0: Yes, we certainly are. I, I mean, this is the first one we've done in, in over a month, though. It's, it's busy, obviously, with the uh, local elections. We've been involved with Tracy Brabin's campaign to get her uh, as the Labour Party candidate, but obviously now the hard work of getting her elected as the West Yorkshire mayor. So it's not been as frequent as we'd like, but we're, we're going to rectify that next month, aren't we, Tom?
1: <laughs> no promises.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes <of laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, as you know, we're talking about um, Joe Biden today, but just before we start, it's been a big day. We're, we're recording on the 18th of February. It's been a big day for Keir Starmer today. Just wondered if you've uh, I watched the speech. I thought he was really good. I think he's got a good blueprint for the future. I think it's easy to understand. What, what, what's your thoughts? What, there was one
2: really big idea today. And I think that really big idea is one, it's timely and two, it's transformational. And that's the idea of the um the bonds, the British yeah. recovery bonds yeah. is what we're calling them. Yeah. And you know, it's reminiscent of of the peacetime post war rebuilding bonds that we had. And although we haven't had a war, the the economic shock of COVID is is equivalent, sure, you know. And obviously, in, it, it's taken a huge toll in terms of people's lives as well. Um, so it is, we, we, need, we need that level of response. And the, the government's level of response, the government stimulus, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a lot about stimulus when we move on to the US, um, yes. isn't of that level. But also, we've got a funny situation where, this is a quite a difficult thing to say, there are some people who, because they've got steady incomes, because they've got low outgoings, yeah. um, and actually because they've been unable to spend mm-hmm. um, during this period, savings have increased. There's yeah, a certain yeah. portion of our of our site where savings have increased. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the interest rates are down to, to basically zero, 0. Mm-hmm. 0.1%. You can't, you know, we're, we're t- there's even discussion. There's a discussion on Radio for the other day about negative interest rates, which yeah. I completely don't support, but you can understand why, why they're talking about that. So these people have got to invest their money somewhere. And rather than investing it on the stock market or in lots of, you know, or, or you know, hedge fund managers getting to use their money, why shouldn't they invest it in the rebuilding of Britain? Isn't that the right and patriotic thing to do? And also, it will give them a higher return on their investment. And secondly, we need to build that new, clean, green infrastructure. We need to, to to invest in that skills training and we need to build those jobs of the future. So it is a brilliant policy, which is very timely. It's not new. I'm not saying that we've completely pulled plucked this out of the air nobody's ever thought of it before. No, of course not. It's just taking something that's happened before and utilising, it. but it's about political will. And I don't see the Conservative Party having the political will to do something like this. So I think, you know, and I think what's important is that we that that this sort of idea, which sort of brings together all the different elements of of what Labour thinks, that we bring out a few a year and then build on them and and put them in the public eye. What we don't want to do is get to the manifesto and then launch loads of policies. And people are like, I've only just heard about this. What is it? I don't understand it. Or conversely, today have have released all our policies and have nothing to release later on. So I think it's the right thing to do, to do a bit at a time, to build a picture in people's minds, and to show how we could potentially transform the country in 2024.
0: Sure. Okay. Well, look, I, I just hope that the Conservatives don't pinch the idea because they, they have parted their tanks on our lawn, haven't they, uh, since the since the election? Uh, and it is a good idea, and it did stand out in the speech. And I did think straight away, wow, that 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 is innovative, and it, it's what's needed. And actually, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that you made the comparison with the post-war. Um, years Uh, and that brings me on to sort of Biden really because uh, Keir Starmer does mention Clement Attlee and and that transformational government um post 1945 to 1951 but I noticed that Biden is also talking about Roosevelt and um you know the alphabet agencies and so there seems to be a sort of a move back if you like to sort of that well post um 29 crash but also post-war sort of era in terms of transformational politics for for the many and not the few i don't know if if that's something that you picked up on as well i mean if you look at the arc of biden from the beginning
2: of the primaries um through to now um harking back to fdr particularly because of covid which you know which when he announced his run wasn't really a thing it was just sort of coming into the public mind wasn't it um yeah so um the the reality is is that um is that harking back to the most successful American president electorally you know of of anybody at any time nobody else served more than two terms he served quite not quite four but he was elected mm-hmm. to four terms coming in after the crash not as immediately in the way that 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 um, Biden has, or or that Obama did, in fact, when he was like 2008. You know, the crash had happened um, four years before um, he took office. But it's similar, you know, that the, the Great Depression. You know, he came in the middle of the Great Depression. They need to rebuild America and build it, rebuild it for the future. Um, and the, he's got the same challenges, and we've got the same challenge as well. We're just not in power. So that the 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 the, the, the read across is is good, and you know, and also. FDR used the power of the state. He was a Keynesian. He he borrowed big and bet big, particularly on infrastructure, but also invested in public services in the state, which was which, if you, if you ask, if you ask now, you know, that doesn't seem like to most Americans, that doesn't seem very American. But it was, you know, that was a very American thing. It just was a long time ago. And so, you know, by Biden drawing on that, rather than drawing even on the Obama term or or the clinton presidency or the kennedy lynn johnson presidency actually does make a lot of sense
1: i think yeah i think we'll see we'll see that across the world with the unprecedented unprecedented situation it it leads to an unprecedented response doesn't it from even right-wing governments who you know believe in a small state um have, have realized that they have to invest in the economy so just coming on to financial package the 900 billion dollar stimulus package that congress passed in december yeah i think first um w- was that what you expected or did you did you expect something a little bit different or a little bit more from biden in his first couple of weeks in office because obviously i know some people from the republican party as well were calling for a higher stimulus package in the end and um, do you think that is enough for the, a country the size of
2: america my, my politics, as in America, would be more, you know, sat within within the Justice Democrats or or, or the DSA, mm. um, more than Bi- Biden's wing of the party. Um, so I've got a lot of um, sympathy for the Justice Democrats who were calling for more, and I, but I think the president, you know, the, the reality is that he's 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 putting forward a one point nine trillion package, infrastructure package. And I think that that is the right, the right level. And the 900 billion really is we've got, what we've got to do is separate out short term stopgap funding to save the economy now today, to stop businesses collapsing, to, to shore up people's wages as we've done with furlough and, and lots of obviously, lots of other places in America have done with furlough um, and then long, long, medium to long-term infrastructure spend, the rebuild post COVID. And so, you, you could argue that um, that his intervention for American families wasn't enough immediately. Um, th- that's a, an argument, and I completely understand that. But that I think probably the more important thing is to see what, how they're going to deliver the biggest, bigger post-COVID stimulus package—the 1.9 trillion. Yeah,
1: I mean, the inevitable argument is going to be in this country, especially, is going to be. About balancing the books after spending this much money, and it's going to be on a return to trickle down economics or austerity measures and things like that. Absolutely. So I think I think we have to, as the Labour Party, we obviously have to be ready to, to take on those 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 arguments head on because if if we kind of go back to accept accepting that that austerity driven economic policy that led us to this issue in the first place and why I actually think we actually dealt so badly with COVID.
2: Yeah, I mean, thinking about sort of always like, if we're going to talk about this in the UK, US sort of terms. So obviously, we in the Labour party is still suffering. And I think today's speech is partly about trying to go over that, about the, you know, the the whole post-crash handling of the economy, you know, and, and, and this conservative narrative, which is false, that, you know, Labour caused... Yeah, the global economic crash, you know, which is started by banks over over leveraging themselves on on, on personal indebtedness, particularly around mortgages. Um, uh, and that you know that we didn't handle it properly when in fact, you know, um, Gordon Brown was the lead player in stopping the whole economic system falling over. There's another argument there you could have. But um but then the American, you know, then if you look at America, what's important actually is if and I think they will Janet Yellen who is appointed has you know um you know a long history um of being as a a, a Keynesian she she did serve uh, alongside our speaker at the Open Labour Conference Joseph Stiglitz on the Council of Economic Advisers he was the chair in fact uh, when she served under Clinton she served it in sort of the back end of the Clinton administration in the late 90s when he was chair um and um She's got. She's certainly from his school of thought. Um, maybe not quite on everything, and I think that um, that 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 sh- she will deliver that. And what we'll see is that obviously, when we come to election twenty twenty four, we're we're pretty much on top of the. You know, we're, we're sort of sort of catching the U.S. cycle, aren't we? Here, you know, mm. so um, so we'll, we'll our election cycle will, will match the start of their election cycle. And then what she's done compared to what Rishi Sunak's done or whoever the Chancellor is by that point, if he survives that long, um, the, the, will be up for comparison. And I think that the, the right at the moment's attacks on um, Janet Yellen and her policy is that, that, that the level of stimulus, both short-term and, and medium-term, what it will do is it will fuel um, inflationary effects and it will also um, over-leverage the economy uh, and um, and it will mean that 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 you're growing the public sector, and you're creating all this debt, but you're not increasing um, productivity in 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 the economy, and that is a general problem in both the UK and the US is productivity. But anyway, I think that that there will be shown up in three years to be wrong, and actually, what it will mean is there'll be whole new industries will be seeded by this, new jobs. Increased productivity in those new new industries, new cleaner green industries, and the public set increased public sector pro- producing people with better levels of education post COVID, you know, and higher levels of skills and more support are all are all worth investing in. While the right have drawn the investment out, and in the UK we've seen that particularly in the FE sector, in the US you see it just 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 everywhere. Um, so um, you know, so I think we'll, you know, she'll be proved right. And then we can utilize that here to show that an alternative approach was needed. And even in 2024, you know, there's, you know, you, you never, you know, it's better to do things at a point. And, yeah. and today's always the, the best time to make a decision and to implement something. But even if you do it later on, as long as you do make the right decision at the right time, you can be proved proved right at that point as well and make a difference. Yeah.
1: You touched, you touched on it there just very briefly about, what we can learn from them in 2024 and looking ahead what do you think labor can actually learn from joe biden obviously the, the obvious answer is the early votes um in the but we're not we're hopefully not going to be in the pandemic in 2024 so it might not be as relevant or is it is it relevant yeah. to have an early vote strategy
2: i mean i mean what yeah i mean um actually i've just become the chair of the all party group on electoral reform and our first session is is to look at um issues around um elections in a pandemic and actually all those issues so um, early, like early in-person voting is something that they have in the US, but they don't have in the UK. Um, the, it is in the Scotland Act, so the, the Scottish government could potentially use it for the Scottish elections, but we couldn't in our council mayoral elections. Um, obviously, there's um, postal balloting, but it's easier in the US. And, and we've got a problem here that the government are going the other way, that, that, that there is no proof in the UK around ballot security and this is actually really good like we're going to talk about Trump actually it's really useful sort of Trump inflection point here so one of the things is 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 there's 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 no evidence showing that we have any issues around ballot security either postal ballots or in-person voting right and so we don't need any additional measures we could actually loosen some of the measures around um security around postal voting um uh, because that 's what stopped us having an all postal ballot for this May, and you could argue that um, it would be much better for the health of the country if we had an all postal ballot and everybody voted um, from home um, and you know and, and actually the security issues balance that out in terms of, um, in terms of any potential voter fraud, which is really negligible on the scale of things. And then you compare that to the U.S., where they had all these methods. Um, although people obviously could still vote in person, that Donald Trump ran a whole campaign saying that that, that early voting and, and particularly postal voting would lead to fraud and were fraudulent and weren't, weren't realistic, and that you know that people's ballots would be lost. And so his supporters voted on the day. Democrat voters disproportionately voted early or postal ballots, and then then he used that as a way to say the election wasn't legitimate. You know, um, so that. These are real issues, you know, but, the, but we on the left should continually say that early voting and um, postal voting are both safe and um, should actually be necessary. Um, it is more expensive for local authorities, that's my only concern. If you're running the polling station, and also where you vote is important if you're having early vote. If you're running a polling station for two weeks, we can't we're not going to be running the polling station the way we do now. And they don't in America. I mean, I was in America in 20, 2008 on a, on election day when Obama was elected, and then I've done subsequent, I did 2016, but not on election day itself earlier. Um but what the the there were much less early voting locations. And again, that's something we could replicate. So in I Leeds. Think- you could have um, Leeds Town Hall as an, as an early voting location. You could have Pudsey Town Hall. You could have Eden Town Hall. You could have, you know, um, yeah. you could have an empty unit in a shopping center at Crossgates. You could, and that, but you, you wouldn't you'd only have a few. You'd only have I'm a glad few. i you you Crossgates in
0: there, Alex. <laughs> but for listeners, that's because I'm standing in, in Crossgates. So um, thanks, Alex, for that nod. But yeah, there's certainly things that we can learn from the practicalities. But in terms of the analysis then of, of why Biden. Biden won. I think it is difficult. There is a lot of comparison comparisons being made you know obviously trump was a right-wing populist as is um as is our prime minister boris johnson uh, and so there's, there's natural comparisons to be made there but actually um it, when you look at the analysis uh, of the election what becomes clear is that um biden he didn't flip a lot of counties he didn't flip people that um that that um donald trump won um back in his first election what he did is expand on on the base on the base and the, I suppose, the base created by Hillary Clinton. Now, that's different for us in the Labour Party, isn't it, in Britain? Because the election for us. In 2019, was between somebody that wasn't a moderate, who was deemed by the public as as left wing and radical, um, against somebody who was a right wing populist. That's a different set of circumstances, isn't it? And and so there isn't the same base there, or perhaps, you know, the voting patterns of of Britain in, in 2019 are different from the voting patterns of the election for Donald Trump when he, uh, when he was uh, Hillary Clinton as a Democratic candidate um, compared to, to Joe Biden. I don't know what you, you think about that, Alex. I think some of the demographics, there's some read across, but I think the, the big lesson the Biden
2: campaign was that he did, win a, he did win the sort of Republicans, traditional Republicans, that were dismayed about how Donald Trump led the Republican Party. And uh, and either there was an element of them staying at home, or um, or flipping to Biden, um, and the 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 sort of Trumpian thing I suppose for us and the 2019 election is, is is Brexit. So the sort of voters that voted the Conservative, who might never vote Conservative before, and the same sort of people um, in America might never vote Republican before Trump and vote for Trump. Um, they voted Conservative. Not because Boris Johnson was, you know, like Donald Trump, but because he was promising to live a Brexit. And by that stage, that was what that was. That was a cut through message. Um, and so in some ways, there are some similarities. But what Biden did, which is really effective, was he he had this sort of big tent politics. And I'll be honest, like Biden wasn't even when they started the presidential primaries. Uh, iowa wasn't even my top three choices to be president um mm. um so uh i was cynical but it worked because he won um but he created this big tent politics and the big tent was he took people who were concerned about and and you remember like during the election campaign you know we had or during the primaries anyway we had the whole B, the rise of blm um we had um Uh, the we had a whole load of culture war issues, which were propagated in the U S and what Biden did was he, was he said, you know, I I'm on your side Mm. and I'm going to tackle these, whether that was anti-black racism, whether that was transphobia, you know, and, and, and and sort of in like in the military, there's the, there's the whole thing in the military around um, anti-LGBT sort of moves by Trump and actually anti-women moves. We just found out with the general appointments the other day, um, but also, he did take an approach around um, uh, the economy and fiscal responsibility, which which appealed to Republicans. And maybe the Republicans would have gone, don't really agree with a, a lot of things he's saying on cultural issues, but like on economic issues, like Trump's a disaster and I don't agree with him. So I'm going to stay at home or from vote. From the analysis vote.
0: that I've seen, though, Alex, from the analysis I've seen is that 95% of Donald uh, of the people that voted for Donald Trump for his first election voted for him again in this election. And of course, you know, Donald Trump um, increased his um, increased his vote and and got the second most votes in in U.S. electoral history. Um, So and I guess the point I was trying to make was that, you know, that 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 would be worrying to anybody uh, analyzing. Um, sort of British politics and thinking. Well, okay, if if um, Biden wasn't able to to flip people that had, that had voted for Donald Trump, we've got a, a whole tranche of the electorate that have traditionally voted for the Labour Party that have voted for Boris Johnson for the first time. Biden wasn't able to flip those people back. Does that mean that we're not going to be able to flip those people back in the Labour Party, and therefore we need to look to a different constituency to win the election? And and, and I guess the point I was yep. making was is that there's not really that comparison there, given the 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 difference in the candidates um that ran in the british election in 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 2019 so there'll be a whole trench i'm presuming and i don't know maybe maybe the the u.s comparison is is relevant but there's a whole trench of of traditional labor voters that wouldn't vote for jeremy corbyn but i think would be ready to vote for labor again under uh, uh, under different circumstances
2: i mean i think there's never an ideal read across um, because the systems are so different, we're talking about a different. We're talking about a different sort of election. You know, of they're course. electing an individual yeah. in America, and we're electing individual MPs, which which then create a government. Um, and that, and and I, but I think there is a point here that that Biden massively grew his voter base. Yes, and and we've also got the same issue that we had. You know that that there, there are lots of voters out there to turn out, um, and there are lots of people who um, who we could reach out to. And so that should be a big part of our strategy. Sure. Um, the other thing is, is that Trump created a movement. And as it transpired after the election, it was a very unpleasant, violent, yes. um, far right movement, but he created it. And a lot of those people w- were like, like I said, were, were first time voters. You know, re- a lot of them were first time voters vote for Trump and became part of the movement. Um, and then there was, there was a shaky coalition between them and, and traditional Republicans, which is completely splintering now. Um, and, and what we've got to think about is societally, culturally in Britain, um, that movement really, you know, the leader of that movement here, the equivalent isn't, isn't um, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson isn't, you know, I don't think Boris Johnson can do what Donald Trump does. If anybody can do what Donald Trump does, it's Nigel Farage. Now so the real danger I suppose, which I don't think is gonna happen, is that we somehow get Farage joining the Tories and becoming a Tory candidate and there's mm-hmm. some sort of, you know, um sort of pact yeah. between those and that and then that that would be very concerning. Mm-hmm. Um but I that 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 doesn't seem to be happening. Um and Farage always wants you know, Farage is more interested in his own ego than he is in, in, in real power. I think he's quite scared actually. Government probably would scare him to death. Mm. Um so, um, so the Conservatives are trying to what are trying to um, energise that base in different ways. So, what they're doing, we're seeing it in little places here and there, is mm. to go after culture war issues in the way the Americans have. But you know, and in my own brief in DCMS, we're seeing it with Oliver Dowden. It's 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 not it's not right that the government can decide to um, fund or not fund. Um, museums and, and academic institutions uh, because of, of decisions made due to curatorial independence, you know um, and, and that's what's happening. That's a very worrying sign. and that's not what should happen. And that, that I think is maybe in, um, where we've taken on some of the Trumpian politics. The other the other thing that, that's very clear with the government is um, cronyism. And, and both in terms of appointments and you know um, we see that in the media world, um, we just seen the Office of Students. James Wharton was appointed to run the Office of Students. We're seeing it in the in Ofcom. We're seeing it potentially in the BBC. Um, uh, and then also, you know, in terms of um the, co- contra- the COVID contracts and contracts more generally, all of those things, that sort of cozy cronyism. But does cozy cronyism get you votes? Uh, like, I, I don't think it does. Actually, in in, in many ways, people don't like it because it looks like there's a there's there's a certain sort of person that gets to run everything all the time. And I think the sort of people that are um, turned off by politics, that's, that's part of what, Not I'm not saying it's entirely what they're turned off by, that's partly what they're turned off by, this sort of establishment, this mm-hmm. cosy establishment that all know each other, and then they just get their mates to do the jobs rather than having open, transparent processes and getting the best people with relevant experience to do the jobs, which is what, what we would support in the Labour Party. So there's maybe something there. I don't think it's the biggest thing. But a lot of the times, actually, the big, the biggest things that change people's mind and move people, aren't aren't early anyway, early in the cycle, aren't the things that have a material, immediate effect on their everyday lives. So, mm. you know, so so in some ways, the Tories are are, are, are taking from the the Trump toolbox, and they've got advisers who who certainly dabble in that area. Um, and then trying to to um, push them into UK context. Now, that might actually fail spectacularly, particularly if we make the right interventions at the right times to show it up.
1: With ditching Dominic Cummings, you know, last year, and, and there has been a bit of a change of the guard in number 10 with Lee Cairn taking over and things like that, do you think, I completely agree with your argument that they've been trying to drag us into a culture wall since the 2019 election, because it worked. It worked then. And there's no suggestion why it wouldn't work now. But whether it's on statues or arguments of what they call free speech and, and things like that, do you think there's, there's a kind of two-pronged approach here? Because we've seen populists and people that absolutely love a culture war, like Dominic Cummins, leave government, but then you've seen them replace with more sympathetic to the media people, like um, the new press secretary whose name escapes me, um, Boris Johnson's. Do you think that there is? It's not all a culture war as much as they would
2: like it to be. Do you think there is a bit
1: more to it than that?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I assume that what they've done is they've done they've done some focus grouping and polling and tried to pull out issues, culture war type issues that they think will resonate. I mean. I'm not I'm not sure they will I mean I've not I've not I've not got alternative focus group data to show that they're wrong and I'm right or whatever so um but the 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 approach I think I think I think you know the approach is also a two pronged approach that they are trying to um show or or explain they are investing in in the in the sort of communities they won in 2019 for the first time or or one, or one off Labour in 2019 if they've held those seats before. Um, but the thing is, is that, is, you know, and a lot of talk about shovel-ready projects, you know, as the, the term shovel-ready project means it's ready to go. And people should, like, if you said shovel-ready projects a year ago, which they did, or nearly a year ago, um, people would expect the shovels to be out, you know, and the diggers to be, you know, in their local community, to be able to see the projects and the hard hats and all of that. And there's very, very little of that. Um, and, and admittedly we we're early in the cycle and by 2024 there might be lots of hard hats and diggers and even completed projects but if you think about it if you think about the 97 analogy Labour Labour said that they would rebuild the country's schools they would end the scandal of outdoor classrooms outdoor toilets schools you know I we I don't think we had an outdoor toilet we certainly had an outdoor classroom uh, I remember the very cold terrapins in the winter um, and um, and Labour did that and you saw you saw you saw the new schools going up you know, we see them all around us in Leeds and in lots of other places in the country. If, if, the, if that infrastructure, if the, the sort of projects, sorry, sub projects aren't, aren't being built or aren't built, then the, the, the government won't have anything to sell. And so they have, then, they have to, then they have to rest on the culture war because that's all they've got left. Yeah,
1: yeah. Back to the US then for a sec, just because we could just go on. We could go on about that forever. One of the most pronounced, you know, things that we see in the UK when it comes to the US is the change in their foreign policy if you know the the way trump looked to engage with the world was completely yep. different i don't know if anyone's watched the bbc documentary the the thing about trump the other day and when he basically stood up in front of all the g7 leaders and so you've and got, got first like second
0: that. experience of this tom it's worth mentioning isn't it that you you work in this area i don't yes. know if you want to disclose <laughs> where you work that's up <laughs> to you but you work you work in the area so you know your onions on this one don't
1: you yes a bit well some might say no but yeah um <laughs> <laughs> yeah no um I'm just, just, I just think that the, the way Biden look, is looking to re-engage with the world is probably the most pronounced way yeah. we would see a, a change in the US here. So we've seen, you know, a, re, a commitment to re-signing the, the Pir- Paris Pirates, Paris Climate <laughs> Agreement, and he's obviously extended the New START Treaty, which is the um, nuclear agreement between mm. the, the US and Russia, um, for a maximum of five years. And... I'm I'm just thinking that as much as we see all these engagements with the world, where Trump looked to withdraw, was in places like with China and with Putin, where he was just softer on on those people, and he, he wouldn't he wouldn't. It's, it's a strange thing to say, but he, he him withdrawing from the world helps in a way towards avoiding conflict. Yeah. Whereas where Biden looks to challenge the, the Chinese government on the Uyghur genocide and a suspended arms sale to Saudi Arabia could lead to more confrontation
0: if that makes sense it does so. tom i was thinking the same thing you know it, biden I, I can't remember the exact phrase but he said you know we're back and you know back on the world stage if you like and obviously we did have the the podcast episode was it the last episode around uh liberal interventionism and and and, yeah. and when he when he had that phrase i was like are we are we back here are we back here again because a lot of people would see that as a a big negative over you know the u.s foreign policy over the past 50 years or so, if not more, um, it is a very negative thing. And perhaps Trump had a had a better position for all his faults. I don't know. Well, I don't know about that. But, the, yeah. yeah, go on. I
2: mean, I, I watched yesterday on CNN. They had a really interesting interview between Christine Amanpour and Terry Branstad, who's the former, the longest ever serving governor of Iowa, Republican. Um, and he was the ambassador to China under Trump. But he... Had known um, Z, um, President Z, for forty odd years. He, President Z, went to America on a tour, and he went to Iowa, and he and he met Terry Brandsted, who I think was a congressman or something at that point in the eighties. And so he'd had this long relationship with him, and um, and so and and, and actually, the, the, probably the biggest biggest foreign policy question, you know, and and the biggest thing is is the two superpowers are now without any question, U.S. and China. You know, whatever Russia wants to do, they're not an economic superpower. They are potentially military superpower, but they have their own in, big internal issues. The two superpowers the US and China. And um, President Xi, um, you know, Terry Branstad said, you know, President Xi's um, views were, you know, that having that, you know, he, he's abolished the term limits for the Chinese president. So, you know, he's effectively doing what lots of other places do when they when they like when, when they see power being lost. And he holds the three most powerful roles, which the presents the least powerful role in the Chinese Serb. He he wants to wield absolute power in China to really, you know, to, you know, it's, you know, as we know, it's communist regime and all of that. So it's um it's interesting in, in and of itself. Um, and he um, won't like, you know, so so the, the Trump approach was, you know, the America first. Sort of protectionism, inward-looking, don't challenge um, you, in, in, externally too much. Just focus on on the internal. That's a real like sort of short summary. It's a bit. It's obviously more complicated than that. While Joe Biden's got an internationalist approach, he looks like he, he wants to have a, a focus on human rights and on peace to an extent, but also and as they always do, with American power at the centre of that and America being the, the, the primary force in the world, which, again, we on the left have some of an issue with, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, um, but he is, you know, want, wants to challenge um, China over the Uyghurs, over Hong Kong, um, over climate, in fact, over a whole range of issues. And also, also there is, there is an element here about um, American jobs, um and 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 you sort of US reliance on china and and so actually some things might not particularly cha- change like um the whole like the all the issues around Huawei, which we which we also see mm-hmm. the approach might not actually change very much over that between the two administrations but um what is clear is 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 how china we all we more or less know what the us are going to do um with biden Is how China reacts to it that's important. So, you know, so so issues like, for instance, if the US decides to take some action, diplomatic action, withdrawal of um, ambassadors, all of that, because China's done something around human rights, is the Chinese response to remove American diplomats? Is it tit for tat? Are we in that? Are we in that?
1: Or is it? Or is it more aggressive? Is it? Is it? Or is it more aggressive? Is it? Is it, is it, is it yeah. transgressions in Taiwan?
2: Or no? Uh, I mean, I don't think so. Uh, or is it? Or is it? Or is it economic sanctions on US? You know, it's
1: certainly going to be an economic war first. Right. Um, but there, there is always what I'm saying is there's always I, I yeah. completely think it's unlikely. But the specter of you know a hot war is always there with the with the territorial um, engagements that have yeah. happened with India and things like that recently.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, well, hopefully the yeah. world. Sorry, I'd, hopefully the world recognises that we've been through enough, you know, over the past two years with the global economic, uh, sorry, global I, pandemic. I th- and the last thing we need is another war. I think war. Ba-
2: Biden will, well, I can't see Biden pursuing foreign policy, which will, which will um, lead to a hot war. What he will try and do is what Obama did with Iran and try and create a scenario which changes some of their domestic policies by changing some of the international um, framework. The problem is with the problem is is that that what you could offer Iran and how you could deal with Iran, you you can't with China because China's too powerful. You know, yeah. and, and China's, for instance, got other levers to, to achieve things like the Belt and Road programme. I just recently chaired a session with the ambassadors of five of of the Central Asian um, countries, in, including Mongolia, which is only two neighbours are Russia and China, which is a interesting and maybe slightly difficult place to be. Um, and that that all the countries, particularly the Kazakhs, were all very, very positive about China. And if you'd had that conversation 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been the same, not as though I spoke to investors 20 years ago, but mm.
1: it wouldn't well, have been the same. in, in an area that we kind of focus on at work as well is the, the Caribbean, and we, you've even seen Chinese economic um, influence there with the Haitian elections and things like that that have been offered um, offered money to uh, run their elections and you've seen a Chinese government political cultural center, what they call it in Jamaica set up and things like that, which is yeah. quite worrying and must be worrying for the Biden administration.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we said it was just going to be a quick conversation and it has been, we can, we could have spoken about any one of the topics that we've covered for uh, at length, but just to finish off, obviously everybody will, will have seen that Trump's got off very lightly uh, I think everyone would agree with, with the with his uh, incitement of violence that everybody would have seen on the news and, and he hasn't been impeached. I think everybody was hoping that he would be impeached because that would be the end of Donald Trump seeking electoral office. Regardless of that, I think uh, I think it was a bit of a fallacy and a false hope to believe that that would have been the end of Trumpism itself. Um, where do you where do you think that do you think this impeachment or failed impeachment, if you like, has had any impact whatsoever on uh, on that movement, on that Trumpism movement?
2: Let's let's be honest. The Democrats never, never thought they were going to get the 17 Republican votes they needed in the Senate. No, that they got seven votes. They got seven Republicans to vote to impeach their own president is. You know, is is an achievement. It's a political achievement in it, yeah. in and of itself, and and you could say maybe maybe the Democrats' um, aim here wasn't to impeach him so he can run for office again, although they said it a lot and it maybe slightly undermined their case in the Senate to, kept, to keep to keep saying it. Chuck Schumer down, um, but it might have been to maybe split the Republican Party, and I think that we are seeing a split in the Republican Party. Right. I mean, the the the, the U.S. is a famously Two-party system. I mean, they've got a terrible electoral system, as we know. It's it's sort of like the Electoral College is is sort of almost the worst form of first past mm. the post you could create, um, worse than our Westminster system. Yeah. Um, and um but it doesn't it it doesn't work with three parties. You know, where we've seen the split of one party, then the other party always wins. You know, this happened yeah. uh, at the turn of the last century, just looks like after after Roosevelt. In fact, and we've seen it once or twice. Um, uh, again as, as things have changed in US politics. So so that's happened. But also actually, and I think it's particularly for people who haven't watched the impeachment hearings in the Senate, um, the the there was some real compelling evidence and real compelling arguments, particularly from Stacey Plaskett, who I think is a new star of the Democratic Party. I mean she's a representative in the in the US Virgin Islands. I'm not sure that'll get there's a route to president <laughs> of the US Virgin Islands or not, probably not. Um, but she was she was brilliant. You know, a, a black female lawmaker and, and former, um, you know, well, she's a former lawyer or a lawyer. I suppose you never stop being a lawyer. Um, sure. And and the, it it did create it did create this new, you know, that actually the whole thing recently is you've created these the these new democratic standard bearers who are not, you know, old white men. Mm. Um, and 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 that in and of itself is is really helpful. So you've got these outcomes which aren't the impeachment of Donald Trump, which are but which are going to be really useful going forward politically for Democrats. Which is you know a big split in the Republicans, which they it's not clear how they're going to resolve. Um, and you know the blooding and and um, uh, and public sort of um, sort of. Um, public knowledge of of
0: these new um potential democratic stars for the future brilliant okay well look it's been great to have you on as always alex hopefully we'll have you back on in uh, in a couple of months time thanks for having a chat with us about biden and the crossover with the uk all the best stay safe and we'll speak to you soon great thanks james thank you